This is Back to Excitement with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 107. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetchaPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Um, so this is going to be, I guess, a slightly different episode of Back to Excited. Um, we felt, given kind of the events under you know, underway in, in the world, we have a bit of a responsibility to use our platform, you know, as small and insignificant as it is in the in the big scheme of things, to use our platform to talk about these issues and I guess go into them in some depth because they, they deserve it. Um, so the first half or however long this first segment takes this podcast is going to be about uh, systemic inequality, uh, systemic racism and Black Lives Matter. And afterwards we're going to we're going to talk a bit about the NHL's response to that and hockey's response to that and what they can do to you know actually make sure that this growing movement, is not just a you know wasted upon them, uh, and we're going to touch on the fact that the NHL and hockey has massive systemic racism issues. And after that, we're, we're going to talk and get into more, I guess, lighthearted hockey stuff. But but this stuff is important. This stuff does matter, and um, we're going to discuss it. So that's this first segment could be five minutes, it could be fifty minutes. We we don't know. We have some rough ideas what we want to talk about, but at the end of the day, uh, this is coming largely uh, just. On, on what we feel and our opinions on everything that's been going on. Um, so before we begin, Fulman, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just, you know, as much as it's probably more fun for us to talk about how much Rasmus Ristolainen is terrible at preventing shots against, and to be clear, we are always committed to doing that in general. But this is what's going on, and this is what's going on in the NHL right now. You know, we're seeing players responding in different ways. We're seeing teams make statements on the matter people donating money. Uh, we saw players like Tyler Sagan and Zidane Chara marching in uh, Black Lives Matter rallies or protests. You know, it's directly relevant to what the league is doing in the world right now. And so, you know, our willingness to stick to sports is always kind of at the best of times, but like this is sports. Sports are part of the world and you can spot that impact pretty directly. So we thought we would talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um... Sports are inherently political, right? The politics involves the structures of, you know, society around us. Sports are a part of that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And hockey, especially so, you know, particularly in Canada, it's very much woven into kind of the fabric of society. And that intertwines with racial issues and uh, systemic inequality and systemic discrimination. So I guess the first thing to point out, and I'm sure... Almost none of what we say will be news to the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, but it's worth saying nonetheless that um, this current kind of movement was kicked off in large part by kind of the quite brutal and senseless murder of George Floyd by uh, a Minneapolis police officer. And I'm sure many of you have seen the video. Um, It's as haunting and harrowing as it possibly could be. There, There is no reasonable way to look at it and not say that that is murder. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no reasonable way to look at it and not say that, you know, the, the police officer, sirs, but the, the one in particular, unnecessarily took a black man's life. And mm-hmm. 
sadly, that's not a new thing. And, that, and that's kind of the point we have to start in at, right? Um, there's many, many ways in which systemic discrimination has impacted people of color, um, but most pertinently to this conversation, black people in both Canada and the US and abroad. Um, but one of the most obvious and most notable ways is through law enforcement, the legal system, and the justice system, where through basically any research you do, you come to the overwhelming conclusion that black people get charged for crimes that others wouldn't get charged with. They are treated in a worse way by law enforcement, in a more violent way, in a way that disproportionately involves permanent harm being done to them or, or, or their lives being taken by these officers. And when, even if all that doesn't happen, when they get charged, they're like more likely to get more serious charges. When they get sentenced, they're more likely to get serious sentences. It's a systemic issue from top to bottom, and it's not anything new, mm -hmm. right? George Floyd is not the first, and sadly, not the last. We, we've, in, in the past, you know, week, we've seen uh, further deaths and further issues with, with law enforcement, right? So I think the important thing to state from the top is, this is a big problem. It's a serious problem. It's one that has is as old as, you know, essentially Canada and the U.S. themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that's kind of point one, and I think for a variety of reasons, um, this particular instance of injustice touched a nerve with people in a way that. Others haven't, right? And, and again, this is nothing new. We have, you know, stuff with uh, Trayvon Martin. Uh, Breonna Taylor was, was, was not long ago. Botham Jean, right? I, I'm rattling names off the top of my head. There, there's hundreds and hundreds of people, of, of, of black men and women, who have been, you know, essentially murdered by the police. And these are, these are just the ones we know about, right? Uh, you, you think about the fact that everyone now has a camera in their pocket. Um, they didn't 10 years ago. They didn't 15 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, this stuff was almost certainly happening back then. We just didn't know about it, right? Or, or, or we didn't have the hard evidence for it, right? This, it's, it's coming to the forefront now because of, you know, technology. And it's a terrifying thought. It really, really is. That, you know, think about how many people's lives have been ruined or taken just completely unnecessarily. And these people are disproportionately black. Right? Yeah, almost entirely. If you know, if you've grown up in a more privileged situation, if you're not black, if you haven't had to deal with this, I think the ubiquity of video is bringing this to people who were shielded from it, who didn't see it in the same way. You know, Rodney King's beating back in uh, 1993, I believe it was, was sort of an early example of that. You know, one of the most prominent early instances of police brutality being filmed. But now a lot of people are seeing this up and close with their own eyes, and the, the killing of George Floyd was so uh, egregious and so indefensible by any perspective. You know, like, there was no way that you can even make an argument that that was anything like self-defense or any of the, the usual stuff. And so I think... The fact that it's being brought as video evidence directly to people who didn't see it before and who, you know, perhaps did not tend to believe the many accounts that we were having or were less likely to hear about them. You know, I, I think it's becoming clear that this is now 
a wider issue. And obviously, this has been a process. You know, we've been seeing through Ferguson and through other earlier movements in the past 10, 15 years. But this feels like it's a different thing. This feels like the issue of police brutality and, you know, the, the killings of minority people is coming to a head in a way that I don't think it really has in my lifetime. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think part of this is also, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, which is also disproportionately impacting black people and people mm-hmm. of color. And, you know, racism is a public health issue as well. Right. Um, I remember seeing a map of Toronto where the areas that were hit hardest by uh, COVID mm-hmm. and they were not the dense environments that you would expect of like the downtown core where perhaps the most people live per, per square capita. It was the lower income areas. It was areas um, to the east and the west of the city, which have predominantly have low income workers, workers who can't afford to isolate, mm-hmm. who can't, who are working, you know, quote unquote, essential jobs and not necessarily given the equipment and the um, resources to navigate them safely at this point. And those jobs for a variety of societal reasons are more likely to be uh, staffed by people of color, by, ba- by black people, mm-hmm. right? Um, who are, you know, systemically disenfranchised in, in, in many ways, right? Po- uh, poverty and uh, race are inherently tied together in North American, probably global structures, right? You, you can't divorce one from the other. And all of these are interacting in a way that is severely negatively impacting the lives of people of color and, and predominantly black people um, across North America. I, I think it's all coming to a head. And as a result, we've seen, um, I, I guess it's been two weeks at this point of, of very passionate and fierce protests, peaceful protests designed to, I, I don't want to say raise awareness, that, that sounds like I'm something, but designed to point out like, hey, this is not acceptable. Yeah, and, it's, and it's not. And, to, yeah. Yeah. And th- these, these have had notable impacts already, right? The, the charges on the, uh, police officers in the George Floyd case were, were upped and all four police officers were charged, which was not the case originally, mm-hmm. right? Um, the LAPD is committed to uh, lowering their police budget. Uh, I don't know by what amount off the top of my head, but there, there's been some changes already, which has shown that these protests, the, that this way of grabbing people's attention and grabbing their time is working. And it's really the only way to work. And I think part of the frustration is that Again, as I said, this is not a new topic for the black community. It's not like, you know, something that they've just been made aware of. This is something that they've been saying for, for decades, and people haven't listened. And mm-hmm. at, at this point, it, I think these protests, for, from what I've seen, what I've read, it, it's, it's frustration that, you know, all the other methods that they've tried, you know, trying to, I guess, converse politely, doing all the things that people who are against protests say they should do. None of that's listened to, right? Mm-hmm. The point of a protest is to be obtrusive. It's to prevent people from being able to hide from the uncomfortable reality. Yeah, you know, I, I think it has to be acknowledged also that this is happening in the era of Donald Trump. And I don't want to blame yes. everything on him. I certainly don't want to exculpate the Democrats or say that they've always lived up to their rhetoric either because they certainly have not, and sometimes they've played into the same systemic problems that are universal. This is an eternal thing. But I think if you were kind of um, 
interested in liberal reforms, in incremental stuff, in sort of passive stuff. The election of Donald Trump kind of brings home that doesn't seem to be getting much of anywhere. It, it seems clear that a lot of the sort of lesser efforts to fix the police, to change how things are going, were not sufficient. We were still seeing police killings. And, you know, people are horrified at uh, the property damage that's created by this looting. I, you know, I think you have to say, okay, but how did this happen? And it's pent up frustration for people who have been confronted by a failure to change 20 years into the 21st century. And we're still talking about this. And in some ways, it feels like the climate has gotten worse, like there's more overt hostility and racism that was at least more masked before. Or it's almost like the, the dog whistling isn't even a dog whistle anymore in terms of how uh, racial issues are discussed. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a horror at the failure of society to move forward on this. You know, it's it's very depressing, frankly. It's it's kind of makes you want to despair that it has not moved the way that we hope it, it would. And so people are turning to whatever means are available to them to try and change this. And I, I think the fact that we're in the midst of, as I said, a, a pandemic which, which disproportionately, disproportionately affects people of color and, and black people and indigenous people um, helps that in, in a way where a lot of these people have lost their jobs, mm -hmm. right? The I remember hearing that the, the black unemployment rate in, in the U.S., it's like way, way, way higher than um, the white unemployment rate. Mm. Um, and, and previously it was it was relatively strong actually the the economy before a lot of this went down but you know as as we've said you know this disproportionately impacts the poor and race and uh poverty are inherently intertwined through again a lot of the same structures mm -hmm. that you know black lives matter and other protesters are railing against right and it, it connects again to law enforcement and um justice and all of that because i, I think one thing people don't realize and actually you're kind of qualified to talk about this with your past as a as a lawyer, is, is how much going to jail can just ruin someone's life. I can't emphasize enough how much I wouldn't want a young person to go to jail if that could all at all be avoided. You know, it's... I've heard some, you know, sentencing theorists talk about it as almost like school for criminals in some ways, but, like, you are putting people in an environment with other people who have been convicted of crimes... You're putting them in an environment where they may or will find it harder to get skills that they would need to live in free society. You're setting them up for more criminality the more that you do it. You know, there are a lot of ideas that I think were deemed radical and are still considered radical now, but that are getting into the conversation in a way that is not, um, like, they're totally off to one side now. Like, I'm thinking of uh, Angela Davis, who's, like, a long-time um, black political activist, and she wrote, Are Prisons Obsolete? And the idea that we really need to look at the whole idea of incarceration and what it's doing. And it's, it's one of those ideas where I think if you are accustomed to, hey, this is how the world works, is we have big jails and we 
send people to jail and all this sort of thing. It can be tough to even conceive of what that would look like, but there are so many systems that are obviously not working the way that we hope that they would, that we trust that they're supposed to. And I think the most brutal and recent example of that is, of course, George Floyd, and then the subsequent protests where we've seen a lot of escalation, a lot of brutality, a lot of, you know, frankly, cruelty from the people that are supposedly trusted to protect the public. You know, I think a lot of cherished delusions as to how things are supposed to work are coming down for people who maybe, again, didn't encounter brutality firsthand before. And I'm not saying that it makes it okay or right that they weren't aware of this, because again, activists have been talking about this stuff. Minority populations have been talking about this for a long time. But but it does feel like it's reaching a boiling point here. Yeah. So that's, I think that that kind of has to be said as whenever you're discussing this, or when you want, whenever you want to discuss any meaningful way, you need to cover, I think, that background. And of course, n- neither of us are experts in this. Um, neither of us, you know, want to pretend to be experts in this. I, I think there are actual experts here. And one of the great things about the internet is that they, their thoughts and their ideas are much more readily available than they would have been 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think you know, the responsibility is on us to learn and to listen to people who are experts in this, who have been talking about this for a long time and, you know, take our cue from them. Uh, And we're going to get into this a bit further when we talk about kind of allyship and what people can do beyond the performative, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess speaking of performative, uh, we should talk about, I guess, some of of the NHL's response to this and moving this over to a bit more of a hockey um perspective so uh, again we've talked about this before but hockey is a racist sport inherently um right it's it's or i should say it's a sport that has cultivated racism for a very very long time um and you know the leafs have had a great example of that in many over the years and nazim kadri Mm -hmm. who's you know talked about about this to to some degree um in, in various interviews and the reality is when you get a sport that is very, very expensive, so it excludes, you know, a huge majority of the population immediately, um, and, you know, predominantly paid by white people, there, there's going to be, you know, it, 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 it's a reflection of society, right? It's a reflection of a part of society. There's going to be racism there, mm-hmm. right? It's not shocking that this type of sport has cultivated um, kind of racist attitudes over time, but, but it has. Right, and, and you don't need to look really any further than some of the people that the NHL trots out on a regular basis, like Bobby Hall. I have to admit, it is unbelievable to me that Bobby Hall, with all the things that he has done and said, is trotted out. That's not even like whitewashing of his personal history. That's like throwing his personal history into the fire because the least detail of it ought to disqualify him as a face of the league. But... At any rate, yeah, I mean, the truth is the NHL is reflects the society from which it spawned and it re- reflects the culture that tends to generate the most hockey players. And for the reasons that we've discussed, that's a lot of 
white North Americans and you know white Northern Europeans, and so yeah, th- there is and rich ones as well. Yeah, and so that's a problem, you know. And we're seeing this through our sport. It doesn't mean that we want to condemn hockey. I think it's pretty clear we like hockey. You know, episode one hundred billion or whatever we're on now. But at the same time, you don't do any good by covering your eyes or by trying to pretend that these are just isolated incidents that happen and there's no greater cultural component that spawns them. Right. And we'd be remiss to not talk about uh, Akim Aliu mm-hmm. and his uh, his story, which he's, he shared more broadly uh, in the past few months. Um, and, you know, he, 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 as one of the few black players uh, in the NHL or in top-level leagues, um, you know, he's, I think, more qualified than anyone to comment on his experiences. And, and frankly, like, when he he wrote in the Players Tribune, or you know, Ghost wrote in the Players Tribune about his uh, experiences. Frankly, there wasn't a ton of support from other hockey players that there probably should have been, mm-hmm. right? And that silence was kind of notable. Yeah, and you know, Akeem Aliu, uh, when some of the earlier stories came out in December, and he did tweet about this. This was related to. Um, Incidents like Phil Peters. Yeah, exactly. And there were some mutterings like, oh, well, he's known for being difficult or something like that. Yikes. And, you know, like that's kind of the response that he's getting is like is that he was treated as a problem or that he was considered difficult or anything. One, regardless of that, that doesn't justify the racial slurs and the things that he was encountering and torments of being brutally hazed and beat up by Steve Downey and all this stuff. But two, that's kind of the problem is that a lot of minority players feel like they have to go along to get along. And hockey is really prone to a culture of, you know, keep your head down and just do as you're told and that sort of thing. And so there's not a lot to challenge a lot of those institutions. And I think that was a factor in a lot of players just choosing to say nothing. And then in response to this latest wave, it took a while before we saw widespread responses. And then they kind of came as a, in a flood. You know, I, I remember seeing uh, stuff from Evander Kane or Blake Wheeler where they seemed to kind of get ahead of the curve a little bit and really start talking about this in a way that meant they were one of the first people to move from the NHL. And then everyone kind of went after that. Yes. And I, I think we, we've seen some very thoughtful and I think well put statements from, from NHL players. Jonathan Taves, I think, had a, had a great one. Um, Blake Wheeler as well. And, and they, they, they rightly said that. Like, look, we've made a mistake by not being more vocal about this before. And I think that's true. Um, one thing I did want to get into, and this kind of relates more to the team's statements, because I think every team has put out a statement at this point, some of, um, some some better than others, and I, mm. I, I think we can kind of comfortably say that some are better than others, but we've also seen kind of a scorecarding of these statements, and speaking only for myself here, um, I'm not entirely comfortable with that idea, predominantly because. I think a statement is, uh, you know, actually this, this is the term you used right before we went on air, Foodman, necessary but not sufficient, right? Like mm-hmm. the statement is 
the absolute it's it's below you know the bar is below the ground i the statement sure it's it's nice to have a good statement what i care about is actions right mm-hmm. actions are what is going to take this further a statement can be inherently performative and even a good statement can be inherently performative yeah and i right? so what yeah. matters is what people and what teams and what the league is going to do beyond making a statement yeah i mean the reality is you can hire a pretty good pr intern who can figure out what the correct progressive things to say are in one of these and not totally screw it up. You know, it's not like it requires a whole lot of effort on your part. And so we're seeing some teams donate money or make commitments. We're seeing some players actually commit to donating money. Uh, Patrice Bergeron did that, for example. But at the same time, a lot of these statements, you know, it's, it's quite easy to say, okay, we recognize... Uh, that racism is systemic now. You know, uh, the the term systemic racism, I think, has come a lot into the popular vocabulary, and that's good. But I can't help wondering, did people just learn, you know, the new phrase, or do they recognize what that means? When you say something is systemic, you're saying it's baked in to the system. You are explicitly saying it's not just a couple of isolated bad incidents or just a few bad people. You're saying that the way that the system operates day to day has a racist component to it, is tinged with racism. That's not a fun thing to accept, but that's true. And that's kind of what you have to confront and you have to start looking at it as, if we're gonna face this, this has to be something that's faced on a systemic level. That means we have to look at fixing wider scale. You know, it's not enough to just call out Bill Peters and say, well, that Bill Peters guy, what an asshole, end of story, right? It's, you have to kind of grapple with the fact that there's a lot of this going around and it's more part of how the league and the hockey world operates than any of us like or than is comfortable to admit. Right, you have to confront the structures that let Bill Peters get to the point where he was, right? I, I mean, I somewhat doubt that was the first time he used the N-word. Yeah, agreed. And also, you know, it didn't come out for another 12 years or so. Yeah. You know, that that's, so, that tells you something about how, uh, frankly, intimidating it is to try and stand up to someone who's in power because if you're coming up to the ranks in hockey at virtually any level below the NHL and at the NHL level unless you're a star the coach can play a really big role in your chances of moving up from where you are and this is something Alu said in his in his players tribune piece where it's mm-hmm. like you know the, the AHL coach of a team is incredibly powerful in making people's careers because the NHL guys, like the NHL coaching staff, they don't really know what's going on in the AHL, right? You, you would hope the front office does, but, you know, the, the, the coach obviously has a big say. Yeah. And, you know, at some level, you decide who gets power play time, who will get the best line mates, who will get an opportunity to get points, who just gets straight up ice time, first and foremost, who gets healthy scratched when something minor goes wrong or is attributed to you. You know, all of those things can have a huge impact in your long-term viability as a hockey player trying to be a professional. And I think it was really glaring the way that people responded to the, to the Akeem Aliou article, quoting his point stats at him and 
saying stuff like, oh, you were never really going to make it as an NHLer. Anyway, you didn't have what it takes. You're just bitter because you weren't very good. And again, it's like, that doesn't answer for all of the shit that he faced, first and foremost. But also, the opportunity that he was getting is directly impacted by what he was facing, and that directly impacts the numbers he may have had. What kind of career he would have had in a better system, in a more tolerant system, I don't know. Maybe he would have been an NHL player. Maybe he would not have. Um, but I find it hard to say that we know for sure what could have been if things had been different, if things had been fairer on his rise uh, up through the ranks. And so that's one of those things that is painful but kind of necessary to confront. So when we look at what teams are doing, we kind of want to say, okay, you're the NHL teams. You are leaders in the hockey world. You are parts of the number one league on the planet. You have a big influence on how things are done from the top because everyone is trying to get to your level to play for your teams or coach for your teams or manage for your teams. You have to be setting that, policies that echo through the ranks. Yeah, they are the system, right? To your yeah. point of like when you when you say there is systemic racism, you're saying, as you said, the structures that we are living by have racist tendencies or are racist. That you know, the NHL is that structure, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, and it's it's not. It's it, the other thing is it's not easy, right? This isn't going to be like th there's not. <laughs> this has been a problem for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm right systems don't change overnight right um i actually i saw this this twitter thread um relating to academia actually so for those of you who don't know i'm um i'm, I'm in academia um and in the field of statistics specifically so there was a very uh famous and influential statistician whose uh last name was fisher um basically invented a lot of and discovered a lot of statistics, right? He's a hugely influential, was also a pretty terrible person. Um, he was a eugenicist, among other things, a very uh, ardent eugenicist. And in the 1950s, um, you know, eugenics was as bad then as it is now, right? Like it's, it's a not very subtle cover for a lot of different isms. And um, I, I saw this Twitter thread from an academic who, who basically said like, there's this very prestigious award called the R.A. Fisher Award, named after him for for um, excellence in the field of, st of statistics. And it's like, and she she wanted to bring up like, hey, should we like just change this name, right? It feels kind of wrong to celebrate um, excellence in this field with someone who is who had pretty abhorrent views even at the time, and views that have looked even more abhorrent over time, and was met with a lot of resistance. And in this case that may be an entirely kind of performative thing. That doesn't actually fundamentally change the structures of academia. It doesn't change the structures of, um, you know, the academic world of statistics and the academic world of math, which is, by the way, quite racist and quite sexist. Mm. Um, but even then, resistance was, was enormous, right? And that's a very, very minor change. Yeah. When it comes to actually confronting and breaking down these systems and making things better for you know the the disenfranchised people who have to operate within them there's going to be even more resistance right because if people aren't willing to make a token change imagine what the, the resistance that's, that is going to come for a real one right and we see that all the time with things like um affirmative action mm -hmm. 
right? We're, we're something, which, which is essentially just trying to say, you know, we should try and equalize for the opportunities that people have received. Um, that That's viewed so controversially, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on the actual, on the mechanics of affirmative action as it relates to academia and other things. But I remember when I was in undergrad, um, I, I had a friend who, uh, a, a woman friend who was in CS. And if anyone knows about computer science, they know it's very, very male-dominated. Uh, this girl was incredibly smart, very talented, very driven, typically got very good co-op jobs. And the amount of times she was told, you only got this job because you're a girl and they want diversity. Too many to count, mm-hmm. right? Um, I've heard the same thing with various uh, black and minority friends in, in, in these fields. It, it's a very, very common thing, right? It, it, the, the system and the attitudes of the people within them are, are broken and, and they're racist. And t- tearing that down is a huge effort. Right? And it's not going to happen over the length of these protests. These protests have lasted a couple weeks. Um, I think the reality is, you know, the, the continued passion has been incredibly strong. The reality is it's going to taper off at some point. And what happens then? Right? So taking this back to hockey, we want to discuss, okay, what can, specifically, what can the league and other allies do then mm-hmm. to make sure that this is not just, hey, remember those three weeks in 2020 where we cared about racism? Mm-hmm. Right, so I think one obvious thing, um, and this is the low-hanging fruit we mentioned before, just stop shooting yourself in the foot, right? Stop having police appreciation night. Stop inviting Bobby Hall, right? Stop celebrating known racists. Yeah, I mean that should be kind of bar to admission. I think you know people jump to like the, oh, what do we do? And it's so hard to say. It's like there are some things that are pretty obvious. Like, that shouldn't yeah. take a huge amount of brain power to be like, is this a good idea? No, probably it, stop inviting like, Bobby Hall. Exactly. That's like, okay, put your underwear on <laughs> and before you go outside, right? Like, make sure you're like, – that, that's it, right? That's – you have to do that, and that's not hard to do, right? The more meaningful things, I think, involve devoting time, effort, and money to these causes, right? Um, one thing I saw with that MLSE was doing um, was – hiring kind of a a senior executive essentially a diversity officer Mm -hmm. i don't know if that maybe sounds more pejorative than i mean it but but someone who i think title is like head of diversity Mm -hmm. right um and i think that is a solid start making your organization more diverse at the top makes a difference getting different perspectives make a difference because as we have seen through this process a lot of people were Maybe willfully, maybe maybe not, but blind to the idea that, hey, this is a really, really bad problem, mm-hmm. right? And being able to be blind of that this is a problem is the definition of a privilege. And if you have a more diverse, you know, lead team, a more diverse executive team, it is less likely that you are subject to that blind spot from privilege, right? But beyond that, you can't just hire a token person right they have to be listened to right and they have to be integrated into the team in a meaningful way it's not just oh yes we're gonna go talk to this person to make sure we're not being racist and then go on our way and stuff like that it's like you have to make it so that people can be part of the actual team you know you have to incorporate them into the systems that you have 
or else you still have a basically white system that is going to be subject to the biases of white people, you know, and hockey is still so clubby. You know, we talk about NHL player is nephew of this NHL player and this scout is the son of this GM and stuff like that. And a lot of it is kind of nepotistic. You know, there's a, a huge amount of, oh, I know this person from way back when. And there's a lot of sort of self-perpetuating structure there where it's white guys hiring white guys they know. And, you know, that's going to happen to some extent, I guess. But, like, the net result of that is that you end up filling up all the slots with people who are already integrated into the system, for people who are already sort of part of the system, so to speak. Like, you're not bringing in new people or new perspectives. And that's kind of how these things perpetuate themselves, or it's one of the ways. And it's a real problem. So, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that's something we're, we're looking at here. So, you know, I, I do think it's good that MLSE is trying to address this. I hope it leads to more things. I've been encouraged by some things that Kyle Dubas has done in terms of trying to hire people who are not just a bunch of white guys. But it's a process, you know, it's still, you know, even the Leafs leadership is still mostly white people. And that's where it's at right now. And they haven't yet successfully diversified that much. So, yeah, that's something that, you know, we've, we've got to expect teams to kind of wrestle with going forward. Right. And then more broadly, part of making hockey more diverse is making it more accessible. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is not a new issue that people um, have covered. Kind of the costs of youth hockey. Uh, I think Sean Fitzgerald at the Athletic has done a lot on this, and it's it's exorbitant and it, it cuts out a lot of people. Uh, and again, those people are are often people of color. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do, how do you get around that? Hockey's always going to be an inherently expensive sport. You need ice. Right. Ice is not plentiful, um, and it's not easy. It's not it's not like soccer where any person with a field can can play soccer and you know get better at it mm-hmm. hockey you kind of need some specialized training right um and, and some specialized and very structured situations that allow you to improve to the level that makes you an nhl player yeah and, again like the the that is a is a serious commitment and that's something the nhl should if they're serious about this work on right um but that's not an overnight thing that's something that's going to take years and the reality is it's not going to be easy. There's not going to be immediate returns on it. Yeah. Now that said, there are so many reasons that they should do this beyond just the obvious ones if it's the right thing to do. But also, if you want people to watch your sport, one of the great ways is to have them play it, you know, or give them some experience of it that helps them fall in love with the sport. And, you know, there was a bit of a, in between all the many more serious things going on, uh, an ESPN host said, yeah, was it this week or last week? Time has fallen apart on me. But he said that hockey was not one of the four major team sports. And, you know, that's probably true in terms of popularity. And, but I mean, it, it depends yeah. on how you define it. Like ho- hockey, the NHL does make a lot of money, right? It, yeah. it, it's, it's clearly a big league, but, it, you know, in huge parts of 
the U.S. It's not even fourth or fifth on the public radar. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's arguable. The NHL is the fourth biggest professional sports league in North America. Like, that's, I think, pretty clear. Like, it's still dwarfs MLS. But, you know, if we want the game to grow, and it's never going to be as accessible as soccer, uh, for the reasons you stated, you know, it's just the entry barriers are high. But if you lower them, you are letting more people get access to the game. Some of them will fall in love with the game. Some of them will, you know, be lifelong fans. Some of them will be players in your league. And so that's important. Now, I mean, we have heard that MLSE does stuff like this in terms of trying to distribute equipment, in terms of trying to help people get a leg up. They don't always publicize it to a huge extent, but it is good. And that's the kind of thing you do want to see from teams. Um if you want to grow the sport, that's one of the most obvious ways to do it. I, I do think a lot about uh, people who are fans of the league now, and they talk about, I, you know, I never got the chance to play as a kid. My parents couldn't afford it. You, you know, we couldn't have the equipment and stuff like that. The, the more you can make it easier on people to get there, uh, the better it is for your league in so many ways. <clears throat> yeah, very, very much so. Um and I guess we should also talk about um, what people can do on an individual level, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, again, neither Fulman nor, nor I are experts on this. Uh, I'll make sure to include some links um, that, are, that have been curated by, you know, the activists who have brought this, who have brought kind of the Black Lives Matter movement to, to the forefront. Um, but what it comes down to is donating time, money, and effort, mm-hmm. right, um, to, to combat structural changes. So... Donating money to good causes is always useful, right? Writing to uh, local representatives and telling them and showing them that you are going to vote in large part based on, you know, their response to um, societal and systemic discrimination uh, and the other factors that are important to you. That's important, right? Um, Becoming an activist yourself is very valuable. And look, I think it can be overwhelming, at first, the reality is there are limitless good causes in the world, right? It's impossible for everyone to do everything about every single one. And that, in my opinion, that's not the bar we should set. The bar we should set is something is better than nothing, right? If you, if you do something meaningful and impactful, that helps, right? And that should be... And we do have a responsibility to do something meaningful and impactful. But that doesn't mean we have to, you know, it it doesn't mean you should overwhelm your entire life and make sure that you're doing every single thing possible. And because that's that's a great way to burn yourself out and to essentially feel overwhelmed and feel useless and feel powerless and all that things. Right. So I think the smart thing to do, read up on what you can do. Do what you can, and then continue to look for ways to improve that within your means. Yeah. The most obvious one is the stuff that happens around you. You know, when you see things in an environment that you're in, in your workplace, or that that aren't welcoming to people, that are, you know, racist or discriminatory, that's the kind of spot where you can stand up a little bit. And it's not yeah. easy to do always, but... 
that's one of the more direct ways you can make a difference on a smaller scale and you know while still keeping an eye on the bigger issues that are probably going to have to be changed uh, by legislative action or by budgeting decisions municipalities and provinces and federal governments you know that are going to have to say okay we need to reappraise how we're solving a lot of problems in our society and are we throwing the police at a lot of things that the police should not be thrown at, frankly. You know, we need to reconsider what exactly we want them to do and how much power they should be entrusted with to do it. And, yeah, you know, that's that's something that we're all kind of grappling with right now. I, I, you know, I'm seeing defund the police or abolish the police or or things like that. And... I think it's at least the start of a reconsideration of what are we doing right now um, to make these choices in terms of how we run our society, in terms of where are we sending cops to solve problems. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, I'll include some links both in the podcast description and in the post on PPP that will have, um, you know, various pe- people have done a very good job of compiling things that we can do in a you know very easy and readable way so I'll, I'll make sure to include that and yeah if you know if you can make those changes to your lives right with you know it's not always going to be easy and it shouldn't always be easy it's going to be uncomfortable at times it's going to be um it's going to feel as if you can't do anything right and i think the important thing to realize is that for for people who are not black who are not indigenous like this isn't about us right this isn't about how we feel about things going on it's about trying to do what's right to impact the people who have been hurt and oppressed and disenfranchised for so long, mm-hmm. right? So it's just do what you can within that to, 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 make, to make everything better or to make things better if possible for them, right? That, that's, that's, that's all we can do. And that's what we have to focus on uh, going forward. Yeah, and so that's kind of where we're at and this stuff is, you know, bigger and much more serious than our usual topics of discussion, but it is the world we live in and it does have a direct influence on the game that we follow and love so much. And we've got to sort of deal with that. You know, it's as much as I think sports are sort of the, the escapism for a lot of people, you know, where we don't have to think about the big problems in the world. The truth is it doesn't quite work like that. They're entertainment they're an opportunity to take something a little seriously that doesn't matter that much in the big scheme of things, but it has impacts that are really important, that are serious. And we right. and grapple with that. And the ability to not think too hard about these issues is a privilege in of itself, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's something that, you know, we have, we have to recognize for a lot of people that is something that can never leave their mind because they're living it. Mm-hmm. Right, so yeah, if you know, maybe it makes our sports a bit less of a, an escapism. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes, right? And that it's a change we need to make. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think I think that largely covers what we wanted to um, discuss on that front. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple other things we wanted to to briefly touch on. The first is kind of the NBA's system for how they're planning to return to um planning to return to play in in the pandemic remember that yeah 
The, the other um, ongoing thing that we're all grappling with right now. Yeah. yeah. So the, N- the NBA system is different than the NHL. So we figured we just kind of contrast the two and give our basic thoughts on it. So the NBA um, has invited essentially the top 22 teams, the 22 teams with the best record, to Disney World, where they're <laughs> going to play out the rest of the NBA season. So it's all going to be in one spot, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the NHL, I think they're doing it in different hub cities. I imagine that has to do with kind of iceware versus, you know, a hardwood floor kind of. It's more easy to, um, it's more robust and that doesn't get worn down as much through games. And there's probably more of them in a single spot than there are ice rinks. So in any case, uh, yeah, the 22 top teams in the league, um, and these are not segregated by conference, by the way. This is just, it's like the top nine teams in the East and the top 13 teams in the West um, have are being kept together and they're going to play eight kind of regular season games each among this 22 team kind of mini league. Uh, and the, the reason why they're creating that is, is essentially money. Yeah. Um, TV contracts sometimes require minimum number of games played uh, mm-hmm. in order to be kind of like legally valid or like upheld. Right. So the NBA could lose billions of dollars uh, because of the, the virus, especially because they're, going to be losing out on all of the gate. So by expanding the playoff field, adding some games leading into the playoffs, they increase the television audience. Um, they've also, if you're very cynical, they have included the New Orleans Pelicans uh, and Zion Williamson, who is like, um, you know, a super high-end and excited, uh, or super high-end prospect, a rookie, who everyone is super excited to watch. He was in, he's been injured for most of the year. He had just come back before uh, all the virus stuff happened. Um, so he's involved in this. That's going to juice ratings, yada, yada, yada. So basically, there's going to be eight games uh, for each of these teams. And the top seven in each conference are going to make the playoffs. The eighth and the ninth seeds will have a play-in if the ninth seed is within four games of the eighth seed. And they're going to have a little, if that's the case, they're going to have a little play-in round um, where the eighth seed has to win one game and the ninth seed has to win two games. So it's at most a two-game series. Essentially, you can think of it as a series that starts three-two for the eighth teams uh, in the eighth team's favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know the eighth and ninth seeds are not within four games of one another, then the eighth seed just makes the playoffs. And then from there, it's a standard playoffs. So this is a bit um, <laughs> a bit Byzantine, to be honest. Yeah, you know the NBA seemed like they were thinking of all these kind of cool league play and round robin and creative. Uh, formats, and then they came up with this, which is like it's the normal format, except there is a whole lot of weird nonsense around eighth and ninth. Yeah, it's. I saw a lot of NBA writers who were just like, "Look, just keep this simple, right? We don't have to like reinvent the wheel here or do some convoluted things. Like, just keep it simple and easy to follow. That's perhaps the most important thing." Um, and they didn't really do that. No, they did not. And so, yeah, I don't know that I like this, frankly. I don't think too much of it. Now, you know, my NBA interest is very casual, and insofar as I have one, it's centered on the Raptors. And the Raptors are probably going to be fine. This might cost them oh, they, They've pinched the playoffs, it, it, yeah. and they have a decent hold on their seed, but... I mean, you never. It's an open question how any, every team is going to come back after such a long layoff. Yeah, I mean, the Raptors have been absolutely shredded by injuries for a lot of this year, and yet they've persevered, kind of in spite of that. Seemingly, no matter who was in or out of the lineup, which is really impressive. 
Uh, and so they have the prospect of actually being totally healthy, hopefully, if the uh, league returns, uh, which is kind of exciting. But it's a, it's a weird format. And, you know, it would be annoying, frankly, if they, they lost the second seed and that cost them. You know, I don't know. I, I can't say that I like this. I know how they got to this conclusion, which, you know, again, they want to fulfill the TV contracts where they get to, you know, keep revenues if they get to a certain number of games. And they also wanted to keep certain teams happy. You know, teams that think, oh, we were right on the cusp of it. You know, we just needed the chance down the stretch. We were just coming into form, that sort of thing. And so you get how it came to this system. But you wound up with this, like, really weird and convoluted thing where you're going to have kind of lopsided half-rigged series and all this sort of stuff for the eight seed, who is, let's be honest, going to get pulverized in round one anyway, probably, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I I have to admit, I actually don't think that it's any better than the NHL system, which I don't really like very much either. Yeah, I I, but, I actually agree. Cause it's just, the NHL system is annoying in the sense that teams that had essentially no shot at the playoffs now do. Mm-hmm. And like, a, like some teams went from a 0% shot at the playoffs to essentially a 45% shot at the playoffs. Yeah. Um, and in the NBA, that didn't really happen because they've only invited... The reason they cut it off at 22 teams... I mean, the non-cynical reason they cut it off at 22 teams is that there's a bit of a drop-off after that. Yeah. Right? Um, whereas the NHL kind of <laughs> made it to 24, perhaps only to include, you know, Chicago and Montreal. I, I like... Okay. I, I hate to sound like conspiracy theorist on this. Obviously, that was a huge factor. Like, and everyone's like, oh, I don't know. They wouldn't just do that to include Montreal and Chicago. Of course they would. They're trying to keep uh, making a certain amount of money by televising a playoffs. They're obviously going to want to at least get a few games for two huge markets. You know, I forgive me. Like, I, I think that, that that definitely played a factor. And it's weird to me that people kind of deny that. But that's an aside. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the the NHL system does have the virtue that, like, any team that didn't make the NHL 24 team playoff has nothing to complain about. Like, the Buffalo Sabres, even in, in like, their, their exit interview quotes, they were like, yeah, you know, it sucks that we missed 24th by one point or whatever, but we were supposed to be playing for a 16-team playoff, and we were nowhere close to that. And so there's a certain, I guess, realism in that, you know, no team can really claim that they were excluded unnecessarily. But, yeah, I mean, right now, all of these systems are confronting a lot of things in terms of they've got to incorporate uh, a certain number of games. They're trying to make money. They don't want to piss off certain uh, bubble teams. And so you end up with these solutions where it seems like they were meant so that no one could walk away too mad. And yet with the NBA system, I also kind of think that it would be hard to be too happy either, except on the base level of at least the sports coming back. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think anyone looks at the system and is like, oh, this is an ideal solution. It's just kind of, well, this is, I guess, what we have to do to get everyone yeah. on board. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, th- I remember I hadn't looked this up recently, so I could be wrong on this, but I remember... The commissioner of the NBA, uh, Adam Silver, also said that if there was a positive test for a team, we don't think it would res- it would um, 
necess- necessarily preclude like that the the rest of that team from participating or whatnot. So they must, if he's saying that, they must have some very high degree of confidence in their testing and I guess infrastructure that they're catching stuff early and that it won't it won't have the potential to spread within that from my perspective that seems a bit weird and to me it's still unclear this is true of basically all the sports that have come back you know what happens when when one person gets a gets a positive test Mm -hmm. um but i'm assuming they've at least thought of that i i don't know what the the answer to that is i I guess i guess i guess realistically we'll see (laughs) the idea that will go you know months without one of the possibly thousands of people involved getting the virus seems pretty minimal to me but yeah who knows yeah i I mean the basic problem has to be okay you would have to be testing so often and getting the results so quickly that you caught a positive uh case and you had that person isolate before they infected anyone else Mm -hmm. or i mean i guess if you want to be really precise about it before on average they infected one other person like, if you caught it, then you kind of caught the next one, and you contained it in time before it became a widespread thing. But, one, that's a huge increase in testing volume and turnaround time over what we've generally seen up to now, which is, you know, people are waiting still several days to get tested in Ontario, for example. And the leagues obviously have a lot of money, and they will have the support of lots of government uh, incentives to try and get going again. But... That still seems like a big lift to me. They think they can do it, and I certainly don't know that they can't, but, I, you know, I can't help looking at that and thinking, gee, that's that's a big lift. That's a lot. So, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So I guess, I guess we'll see uh, how that goes. Yeah. Um, I think the last thing we wanted to touch on, unless you had anything else on that front. Nope. The last thing we wanted to touch on was... Um, PPP's top 25 under 25. Um, so it is it is coming back. Uh, we're going. I think the voting's underway. I don't know when exactly the uh, pieces are going to go up, but it'll be soonish. Mm-hmm. And um, let me tell you, as someone who who's made an effort to to vote this year, it's really hard after like nine or ten, basically because we basically have no one else in the system. Like there's nine guys, inclu- this is including the NHLers, by the way. There's mm-hmm. nine guys who I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I feel decent about them. And then everyone else is like, who the fuck is that guy? It was incredible to me the degree to which it fell off right around 14th and 15th. Like, you would have the guys, you know, you talk about the nine guys who are, like, actually kind of serious. And, you, like, right around 9, 10th, it drops to, like, longer shot guys. And then after 14th or so for me, it was just like all of these guys are, like, the most distant lottery tickets. And, you know, you can say, oh, well, I I believe it might be this guy, and maybe one of them will do something. But we're really seeing some some shallowness in this pool this year. Um, Who knows? We actually have decided to do a thing where we are considering ranking the draft picks that the Leafs will have against the lower parts of the pool. Because the odds are whoever the Leafs pick with their second-round pick has a pretty good chance of being better than some of the people who are at the bottom of the list right now. It's such a thin group that even like a mystery box on average is probably going to displace somebody. So 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you'll be getting to know some faint hope prospects. And then as we get into the top half of the list, excuse me, top half of the list, you start seeing the more interesting players along with the NHLers and the big prospects. And we were going to talk about kind of one interesting comparison that's shown up on a lot of lists so far. Yeah, so the top three is obvious, right? It's it's going to be—I'm not going to spoil anything here by saying it. Matthews is going to be number one. Um, and then probably Marner number two. You, you can go back and forth on Marner and Elander at, at two and three. I, I would still probably put Marner ahead. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they're, those three are clearly in a tier of their own. And actually, actually Matthews is, is in his own tier. Marner and Elander are probably in their own tier. Mm-hmm. And then after that is when you see a bit of perhaps a bit of divergence from uh one from one voter to another yeah so it's worth noting the top 25 under 25 like the name implies is to qualify you have to be under 25 as of july 1st 2020 so this is something that we always kind of integrate and work with each year when we do these lists is how do you compare guys who are already in the nhl at a given level with guys who are hot up and coming prospects and so this year, the best example of that is how do you compare Kasperi Kapanen, Rasmus Sandin, and Nick Robertson? Kasperi Kapanen is an established NHL player. He's a 20-goal man. He's a very good third-liner to good second-liner, I would say. He's a middle-six guy. Um, we know his strengths and his weaknesses. He has very impressive speed. He has a certain amount of finish, uh, no pun intended, and he's able to put the puck in the net at a decent level. He's a good player. Uh, Rasmus Sandin is into his first uh, rookie season. And, you know, he's the great hope on defense. He's looked good at times in kind of a sheltered role. Thus far, he hasn't had to be more than a third-pair guy. And then you have Nick Robertson, who just torched um, the OHL. Uh, in his uh, draft year plus one. And, you know, on the one hand, it's junior. On the other, he was a very, very young draftee. And his goal stats are incredible. And so you have a decision to make there in terms of how do you rank the potential of those guys who clearly are on the way up and have more to give versus an established player like Kasperi Kapanen, who is probably close to what he's going to be at this point. Yeah. Um, I think it hurts Kapanen that he wasn't as good this year as he was last year. And, and part of that is not really his fault. Uh, at times, he was playing left wing. And it just, like, at the start of the year, and it was just very clear he's not a good left winger. Yeah, I thought that would go a lot better than it did, honestly. Some guys struggle when they just switch sides, and he turned out to be one. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, with the Leafs as currently constructed... He's kind of locked into that third line right wing role, and I know Nylander's play switched a bit to left wing at times, mm-hmm. um, but you know, broadly speaking, Kapanen I think is best suited as a, a guy on a on a third line, uh, or you know, someone who's not necessarily expected on a line that's not necessarily expected to bring offense every night, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. think he he's that player. I think realistically, he and Kerfoot, when paired together, form the basis of a third line that is going to win a lot of matchups and has some game-breaking potential with Kapanen speed, mm-hmm. um, but by and large is going to just be a solid possession-driving line. Yeah, 
right? And I think realistically, that's where Kapanen is going to exist for most of his career. Um, he has some utility as a as a really strong penalty killer and as a shorthanded threat. Mm-hmm. But I think the upside of Robertson is large enough that I, for me personally, I, I'm comfortable saying this now because I'm, I'm one voter of like 10 or whatever. So it doesn't really spoil anything. But I personally uh, voted Robertson ahead of, of Kapanen um, because of that upside, right? Uh, you look at the stats and very few players who have scored as many goals as young as Robertson has uh, have not been good NHLers, mm-hmm. right? Um, so... The other thing is, I also think he has the possibly the most valuable skill in the NHL, which is he might be able to sustain an above-average shooting percentage. Right. Right? And, and that alone makes you a weapon. So if that's the case, then I, I think what Robertson becomes is he has a decent chance of being someone much more valuable than Kapanen. And he has a decent chance of flaming out entirely, right? Like, as good as I think Robertson is, he's not a sure bet to be a good NHL player, right? It's it's not impossible for him to not make it to that level. But I, I felt comfortable putting him um, above Kapanen, which is a bit unusual for me because I normally go for the more sure thing. Mm-hmm. But I think Robertson was a bit of the exception to my standard approach here. Yeah, I still did this in the sort of conservative fashion that I've always done with these, which meant that I voted Kasperi Kapanen ahead of Nick Robertson. The thing about Kapanen is that he has a pretty close to 100% chance of being Kasperi Kapanen going forward. You know, we kind of know what we're getting with him. He's done it enough that I think it's beyond the level where, like, his previous performance is a blip. Obviously, he could get injured or he could have a drastic decrease in effectiveness but the chance of that is the same as the chance for every other player at this age bracket so I kind of know what he is he's a good NHL player and while I think sometimes he suffers by comparison to the two really really good right wingers who play ahead of him uh he's useful I think he would play second line on most teams yeah and so when I, I look at that and I say okay Nick Robertson has done pretty much everything that you could ask him to as a junior player who was not like an automatic lead pipe cinch superstar. Like he's done really, really well, but at the same time, it's junior and junior is two big steps below the NHL. Robertson may be ready to leap up the stairs, so to speak, to cover those two steps in a single bound, but junior is a long way short and I can't help thinking until I see him do this in a professional league, I don't have the kind of confidence that he'll be an elite player. If the idea is just that he can be a good middle six forward, which I think is entirely reasonable, well, that puts him on a level with Kasperi Kapanen. And then there's always the chance of flame out or that his game just does not translate like we hope. So I think where I landed on this is that, yes, Robertson has a chance of being really spectacularly valuable, and that's worth something. But his median case to me is probably that he winds up around where Kasperi Kapitan is now. And so I took the certainty that Kapitan is already there over the different range of possibilities of Robertson getting there. I will say I've done this or voted in sort of this way 
on pretty much every top 25 uh, since I've done them. And the result is that I don't tend to overrate too many guys, but I've underrated a few. You know, there are a few people who I was slow to appreciate were rising up, and I am certainly taking the risk here that Robertson's going to make me look silly by just absolutely shredding in short order next year. Maybe in the NHL, who knows? And so, yeah, I, I've decided to kind of err on the side of conservatism there. If he blows all expectations out of the water, good for him. How did you consider Sandine versus uh, Robertson? Because Sandine's like not quite a guaranteed NHLer yet. He he did fine enough in his limited NHL role this year, um, but he probably also doesn't have the upside of Robertson, right? So how did you view them? Uh, I had Sandine ahead of Robertson also, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess because of that NHL proximity. Exactly, and because I think. I think Rasmus Sandin is 90% to be an NHL defenseman. And there's still an outside chance that I think he can be a top pair NHL defenseman. Um, I don't even know if I want to say outside. I want to say, like, it's all kind of wide open right now. And even if, you know, it's not the most likely outcome that he turns into a, a really good number two guy, I don't think that's at all off the table, especially at his young age. And so the fact that he's already made the NHL, I just find myself thinking the quality of competition is so different. You have to learn to play so differently uh, to move to the professional ranks in the NHL specifically. I just haven't seen Robertson do that yet through no fault of Nick Robertson's. Of course, he had to play in the OHL. It's just, I don't quite trust it until you do it in the pros. And I think Robertson has a great chance of doing it in the pros but I'm not going to put him ahead of people who have done that until he does that. Okay. So I actually had the three of them in the exact opposite order you did. I had um, Robertson first, Sandy in second, and Kapanen third of those three. Mm. Um, with with Sandy, I'm, I'm not 100% sure the elite upside is there. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and I, I think oh, I take forwards over defensemen in most cases, because I think it's more obvious when a forward is outstanding as opposed to a defenseman. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't feel incredibly strongly. Like, I, I would, I'll, I'll say this. I don't think it's insane to reverse the order, but I didn't think, I didn't have to think too hard about that order either. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was like, okay, yeah, Robertson makes sense. Because what he's done really is stunning this year. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, again, everything that you could ask of him to do, he did. He was yes. as great a goal scorer as there was in junior. And again, his birthday is so late that if he were born a week later, he would be going in this draft. And I feel pretty confident he would be going higher than he went last year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I suspect he would be like a late first or something like that. So, yeah, I, I just, I totally get where people are coming from. And I think that it's totally legitimate to be excited about Nick Robertson. Normally, I feel like I'm kind of pouring cold water on this or that dazzling prospect. In Robertson's case, it's just a question of, I want to wait and see a little bit. You know, there's a lot to be excited there. There's real potential. I've just seen people trip on this step more than once. And so I want to see how that goes before I put him past people I'm confident have already cleared that step. 
Yeah, I think that that's reasonable. It's, it's, it depends on how you view the list, right? And that's always been the um, that's always been kind of the calling card of it. Every voter has a slightly different interpretation of, of what the list is or what it should be. And we mention this every time, but like the 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 order is really not that important. It, it's mm-hmm essentially just a premise to do a get to know you for the Leafs prospects. Now this year it's a bit sad because the get to know you is about five names long. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Christians Rubens, come on down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, But in in general, it's just a chance to learn more about, about the Leafs players and kind of their, what's got them to the point that they're at and what we can hopefully expect out of them going forward. Yes. All right, cool. So I think that's everything uh, we wanted to discuss today. Was there anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, that was my running my spring. All right, perfect. So um, thank you, everyone, for, for listening. Obviously, this has been a, you know, a heavier podcast than most, and I think that's a necessity. You know, it's a reflection of the times we're in, now more than ever, as people are, are wont to say these days. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I hope we were able to provide you know, some, some useful discussion over of what is a very serious issue. And I hope that you know, all of us are continued to commit to push for real systemic changes uh, to the world that we live in for, for the betterment of the people who are going to come after us. So um, with that said, thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. We'll see you in a couple weeks.